Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. It is Sunday, March 24th, 2019. And first and foremost, we have to uh, remember Fleur Abuhoff. This uh, would be her birthday. Her 92nd birthday. Only 92nd? Yeah. Okay, uh, just a kid, she would have been. No, no, 90, ooh, I got that wrong. 1926, she would have been uh, 93. Okay. It's good that you're in charge of the math. Yeah. And the arithmetic. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, today, uh, we have a special guest. We do. And uh, that would be Pam Borg. Who is born. Yeah, okay. the matriarch <laughs> of a family, uh, of an important family in our lives. She is related to a lot of our favorite people, including the lovely Noel. The mother of Noel Borg. Let's, let's yes. put it on the line. Let's but get right to it. But, but don't forget about all the others. Yeah, and all the others are Chuck, some interest. And Dominique and Zavi. And no, 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 she, she, is, she is here for one main reason. She is Noel Borg's mother. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the key reason? There's no, she's is, here because she's podcast gold. Well, she is, it turns out which, she's podcast uh, gold. Which our audience will find out exactly. in a moment. All right. But uh, say hello, Pam. Hi, everyone. Uh, there we go. That's enough. And she, can, she can say other things. <laughs> go ahead. Go, keep going. Go ahead, Pam. Come on. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> All right. We're going to hear more from Pam in just a second. Just a second. Because we have to lead off before we forget with what we saw this week, which is... I married an angel on Thursday at City Center, as we previewed last week, which is the City Center's encores, and I was starting to discuss with Pam before encores being that series that we subscribe to. There are three plays a year, they're really concert performances, they're revivals of plays which really don't merit a full revival, that's why just a concert performance, and is this something that there didn't merit a revival, or what? Because it wasn't so great, which is too bad, because encores is usually very good. Right? I I went on record saying I was not looking forward to it. Congratulations. We were, <laughs> in retrospect, I'm not looking forward. It was just to set the stage. You know, I'm not sure they even tried. Uh, oh, well, let's, let's be clear what it's about. Let me give a little background before we go at it. But it was uh, a 1938 play or so. Uh, Rogers and Hart was toward the end of their partnership. Uh, they were writing at that point three or four plays a year. They were pretty much um, expanded reviews. Uh, but they were just pumping it out. They were very popular, apparently, at the time. A Married Angel is a story about a fellow who marries an angel, believe it or not. And it turns out that that's a mixed blessing because an angel has all kinds of characteristics that are not consistent with normal human behavior, including that scrupulously honest, uh, not diplomatic, difficult to deal with for third parties, and all kinds of difficulties uh, arise as a result of marrying an angel. Who knew? So it stars uh, Sarah Mearns at... at uh, as a, she's a ballerina, and she's an accomplished ballerina. She's brought into this production to do a lot of dancing uh, and to act in a musical comedy. And it's directed and choreographed by her husband, a fellow named Josh Bergassi. Um, and and uh, now, go ahead. Uh, doesn't work, right? Doesn't work. I don't. I'm not sure it ever worked. Right. Uh, looked to me like uh, Rogers and Hart. And I am a Rogers and Hart fan, but it looked to me like they were not pumping it out so much as phoning it in. Really? Uh, it really, uh, the the songs, the memorable songs don't make any <laughs> sense. 
to the story. I'm not even going to go into depth on the story because, uh, you know, I don't think they cared about the story. Yes. Uh, and uh, it really, uh, I think it's kind of a blessing because uh, it does say to the world uh, that uh, not so great being married to an angel. And it kind of, you know, so that uh, it kind of endorses non-angels like myself uh, as possible good marriage partners. Uh, <laughs> I thought you told me when we watched it. I was like watching my own life story. I married an angel. But, but going back to the production itself. That was a little tongue-in-cheek. I got it. The production itself was not good. There were moments in that that were so, that reminded me, not so much of other plays we've seen on Broadway, but of middle school productions in Cranberry where some eighth grader forgot her lines and there's like an awkward pause on stage and you're going, what? I mean, it was that kind of dead air. It was just bad. It was just crazy. Yeah, bad. jokes were not landing. It was awful. And you know what? what? I mean, I don't know anything about choreography. It was terrible. But it looked terrible. It, it looked, looked terrible. like one of those things where... Uh, one of those um, talent shows yeah. where the fifth grader just kind of flitters about yeah. Yeah. pretending to dance. Listen, there's nothing there's nothing constructive that comes out of this sort broke of dumping my heart. Broke my it heart. was just a weekend performance. We still believe in encores. We still think you should go. You take a chance. It works nine times out of ten. Tam's reminded me before that I've been giving the wrong figures for the ticket prices. Sometimes you can get them as low as 35 or $40. Keep your eyes open. This if anybody paid seventy five bucks for that show, they got ripped off. Uh, oof. All right, all right. Now I hope we got that out of our system as we go back to our guest who has patiently listened to this. Uh, so Pam, Pam came more. east. So Pam, tell us why you're here. Um, I came to uh, New Jersey through Newark Airport uh, to um, talk to Rutgers University's College of Nursing tomorrow, Monday morning at 11 o'clock, and I'm going to be addressing um, nursing's call to action, uh, the marijuana journey um, after legislation of legal marijuana in the state of Colorado, and what implications for the future for uh, New Jersey should they pass the law this year in their legislature. Right. And Pam is speaking to this. Because Pam is a trauma nurse, is that a fact? I am a trauma nurse. I direct the trauma programs in um, Colorado for Centura Health. And we have had lots of experience with marijuana since its legalization and caring for trauma patients who use uh, marijuana. So what kind of implications are there? The, the implications are really that um, these patients who come in after their trauma um, and who are regular users um, have to be medicated differently um, than those who do not use marijuana um, because the receptors in their brain um, that help to modulate pain are affected by um, recreational use and chronic use of marijuana. Right, and so you, and this becomes part of the history that's taken when a patient. That's comes part in. of the history, and pre the legalization, people were reluctant to let us know about utilization of illicit drugs, mm -hmm. as it was known uh, before it became legal. And now, um, four years later, after the um, legislation, people are much more apt to tell us that they're users, and it allows us to care for them better. Uh, because we can utilize other synthetic drugs that will provide the pain relief that they need, especially mm -hmm. after their traumatic injuries. So in other words, there are certain drugs you would not use with somebody who had recently... Smoked a bowl, as they say on yeah. the hill, um, of marijuana, or um, after they've had their brownies um, at the end of the ski day. Um, and so we 
medicate them differently. And we are able to provide relief of their injury um, in which they um, accomplished, as we call it, at the hospital, hospital air uh, in the terrain parks. And they come crashing down, um, literally and figuratively, um, and become um, our patients. Well, well, you were, and this took us to a discussion, a broader discussion of the uh, the benefits and perhaps deficits of using marijuana. And you were, you were telling us that you know the re- the therapeutic benefits of uh, marijuana are pretty well recognized. I think, I think they're becoming more re- recognized, and I think that's probably some of the important benefits. Colorado became a mecca. We had the Colorado Rush, um, especially after it was found out that infants who suffered from seizures. Um, could benefit from the oils that were um, compounded down for these infants and were able to provide relief um, so much so that families moved their entire um, lives to Colorado in order really? to be able to procure really? um, the utilization of this medication when it was still medicinally used. And it's medicinally available um, here in New Jersey. Um, and yeah. so people don't have to move across the country for it. It's also been utilized and very helpful um, in patients who are suffering from dementia. Um, and especially in regards to their anxiousness and um, agitation that they sometimes can experience. And it's also good for the over 65 crowd um, that craves their warrior um, and athletics lifestyles. Uh, and what topical- are you looking at me for? <laughs> Is that, because, is that for the marijuana use or the warrior lifestyle? Oh, the warrior lifestyle. I see. The warrior lifestyle. Wait a minute, is that to recover from the warrior <laughs> Yeah, lifestyle? I, I think I know exactly. Let, let, let the woman finish her sentence. And so, really, it's the topical creams that um, can be made out of the TBD oils, um, which also can be extracted from hemp. Um, um, but it's the THC, just a small percentage thereof, that probably helps to provide some of the relief. Some believe that's my belief, um, and um, it's been and that over sixty five crowd um, is one of the grow, fastest growing users, certainly in the state of Colorado, and and I think once it becomes legalized in New Jersey, we'll also become part of that. Yeah, fastest so, growing crowd. All right, so look at me again. <laughs> now the hemp. Derived CBD is that yes. CBD? Yeah. CBD. Okay, so CBD doesn't contain THC, right? Okay, which is the hallucinogenic aspect. Yeah. Of right, and we've talked about the, the CBD previously, right? But right. but you you but saying, you but you are saying that there are specific um, or you know that there are certain medicinal aspects of THC not available. In CBD. the CBD, and, correct, and not only and, and that's available in New Jersey, but you need a prescription. a prescription, a prescription for it. But we may see more use for medicinal purposes, self medication. Yes. Um, in other words, there are other there are other uses of yeah. uh, well, marijuana the besides recreation. Increase, yeah, right? yeah. No, no, um, I think that, that will be available. But to people in fairness, you did say before people go crazy that there are some uh, potentially detrimental effects of marijuana, particularly for younger people. I think we're talking about learning and, and, and the like. And I think habitual use of of marijuana, especially in adolescence, is not good um, because it, it's known to affect brain development. And um, those individuals, especially if they use them for long, protracted periods of time, become regular users, could in fact have their potentials 
um, altered. Off, altered and I'd really right. off right. the beaten track in terms of being able to become to learn as best they could, mm-hmm. you know, during that really important period of their lives when they're gaining education and gaining um, life skills. Right. Yeah. So the, the the adolescent brain is right. significantly different Vulnerable. from the adult. And it's vulnerable uh, to right. those impacts. The other thing we discussed that I thought uh, was worth mentioning is that the legalized, the amount of THC in legalized marijuana, marijuana can be significantly higher. It is. Di- uh, so that changes the effect on the bodies. Nurses need to be aware of that. Right, uh, correct. And if we were um, at the um, dispensary, the, the dispensary, the, the, um, if you want to call it the tenders, you know uh, the people the people that guide you towards what kind of marijuana you would like. Um, they can tell you the percentage of marijuana that's contained in those products. And one of the things that is definitely true is that if you smoked in the '60s or the '70s, the percentage of THC was at four percent. If you smoke now, that percentage is considerably higher, and some people say as high as forty percent. Probably most of the stuff that's being sold um, legally in California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon is probably anywhere from twenty-five to thirty percent. So that's uh, something. So there is a paucity of information yeah. and research yeah. regarding what well, that means. Well, one thing I did ask you is whether um, what Colorado's experience was uh, in, in terms of uh, marijuana. But in particular, when I asked you whether, in fact, there have been more in the way of accidents, uh, car accidents, let's say, because of young people using marijuana, your answer surprised me a little bit, but didn't surprise Tamsin, of course. And you said, uh, well, your answer was, no, it's because it's some, some, some other reason. It's because of distracted driving yeah. and, and cell phones. And, and that they have not been able to establish causality um, between increase in motor vehicle crashes in the state of Colorado um, with the legalization of marijuana because of distracted driving. Yeah, you can't differentiate. Uh, were they distracted because they were high or were they distracted because... They're texting and answering the phone, uh, et cetera. And some of the research that I'll present tomorrow morning in Rutgers is actually we've shown a higher percentage of people that have been injured as auto pedestrians. Um, and we don't know, again, if it's marijuana or the distraction of the person on the telephone that's walking across the street. Right, staring at the phone. Staring at of, the phone. Yeah. Uh, well, I looking at the traffic. So, so by coincidence, there's an article that in, uh, I'll, what is it in the article? It's in the Times. This weekend, called Bring Back the Stick Shift. And you might say, so what could that possibly have to do with what we're talking about? And what this person says, uh, it's an opinion article of a person named uh, Vatsal Thakar. And the, the uh, thesis of the article is that uh, there are a lot of uh, crashes uh, in vehicle pro- vehicular problems caused by distraction. Uh, and the only way to change that is to make sure the driver is fully engaged. Uh, and the way to do that is to cause people to be fully engaged by driving with a stick shift as opposed to an automatic. And, and this well, person doesn't he propose getting rid of all the uh, random aids well, in the car, he, like he, the warnings uh, he, he for does your use, blind spot? He do, he's not getting rid of any. Well, he's not saying you should get rid of anything so much as he's saying that, as it now stands, when you get into your car and we get into our car, there are so many warning bells and whistles that this car coming to the left, you're getting close to something from behind you when you're parking, that sort of thing, and you come to lean on it and expectantly lie on it, and you don't pay attention by looking out the window as much as you should. And that contributes 
to this whole idea. And, and, and looking at your phone would contribute to it. He also talks about you shouldn't be eating in the car, all kinds of things people do in the car. Let's be clear here. Yes. Uh, you don't use the phone while you're driving at all. That's correct. But you don't, you have never really bothered. Careful, careful. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, look around. <laughs> you're not terribly engaged while you're driving, I, I'm in driving. I don't think stick shift is going to help, Daniel. I've driven a stick shift. And uh, I've had... Once! <laughs> I've driven a stick shift and one a Mac. I, I'd like to say I'm successful with both, really. So to me, I'm open to anything. But it, this person says that it's, it's counterproductive. And I don't think it's a serious suggestion because he doesn't see it happening. As a matter of fact, he's... He's kind of a myth that the car he's been driving, I guess it's an Audi, uh, is discontinuing stick shift completely. Uh, and uh, and a lot of cars have discontinued stick shift completely. Well, we have several friends, yeah. uh, Kathy Easton and Lisa Walsh, who will only drive stick shift. Because uh, they're distracted by marijuana use? Or what, what is it? I didn't really, uh, I don't know. But, you know, one of their problems is, uh, you know, if you go to park in the city yeah. or you go to a lot, yeah. uh, valet parking. Because not all use, those kids really? who do the valet That's parking can problem. drive stick shift. That will grind your gears in a way. And uh, yeah. some of them hop in the seat and say, well, I've always wanted to try. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's serious. It, it, I mean, this person is trying to make a serious point, and they actually use the example of the recent Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircrafts and saying the way that uh, the technology has kind of done a disservice that uh, it's correction upon correction upon correction, and the pilot's put in a difficult situation and it's kind of not paying attention to, in this case, was an overcorrection where the software was putting the nose, di- nose down further than it should have to correct for the fact that the engines are too far up in the airplane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, look, there's nothing better than the brain. There's nothing, no artificial intelligence better for the, than, than the brain for seeing everything that's going on and making adjustments for even unexpected things really? that happen. Really? And that's why you can't be distracted. I don't know about that. There's nothing better than I that. think we can have better training uh, to uh, utilize all these things and still have the human backup. Yeah. Uh, but, uh... Well, uh, you're not yeah. going to see stick shifts anytime soon. But the idea of not being distracted... That just sounds like cranky old man stuff to me. I, I'm all like, for I want the good old days. I, they didn't give the age of the guy who wrote the stick shift. Maybe they should... They should, ha- they should Put the age of a writer of all these articles so you can really bear down in the cranky old man aspect. It could Look, be 28 you know years what? Old. You what? can have a 28-year-old cranky old man. Oh, you can? Yeah, trust me. Oh, my God. I've known some. <laughs> all right. Speaking of which, there's another article. It's a legal article. So, you know, the legal stuff, I know people like sit up straight and kind of interested in this. Right? Uh, and that is the uh, dispute between Anheuser-Busch on the one hand and, and Miller on the other over, these, over the corn syrup thing. You saw it in the Super Bowl. Anheuser-Busch, uh, Bud Light, uh, rolled out these ads which criticized uh, Miller for use of corn syrup. And the way they did it was it would be some kind of faux delivery of corn syrup, syrup that went to Bud instead of to Miller. And the Bud folks were going to bring it to Miller because Bud doesn't use it. It's horrible to use corn syrup. Only Miller uses it. And uh, that's caused a big dispute because it's kind of misleading. As a matter of fact, it's, it is misleading. Uh, in that, for two reasons. Number one is uh, Miller uh, does use corn syrup because you need some kind of sweetener to do the fermentation process. But by the time the beer is delivered, there's no corn syrup there. And number two is that the real thing that's objectionable is a high fructose corn syrup. That's the thing that uh, that gets people concerned. There's no such product used in the beer. Um, yeah, as for Anheuser Busch and their beer, they use rice instead of corn syrup. But again, it's a sweetener. It's not too different. 
is using a fermentation process. So what, what the Bud folks are doing is taking advantage of a distinction without a difference, and you can see why Miller's riled up. Distinction now. without a difference. Is exactly. that a legal term? Uh, yeah, and also in certain okay. uh, high tone places they talk like that. But yes, <laughs> but what's important to me is that when we describe the situation to Pam, she immediately said, well, what does cores have to do with this? And, and, and of course, that's what Pam would say because Pam's from... Colorado, right? And, and she sees it that way. It's not. It's not a, an interesting beer issue unless Coors, Coors is involved. involved. So we had to look up and determine. Am I making this up, Pam? No. Right. And we had to determine that in fact Miller is called Miller Coors, so that they're in the fight no matter what. But the other thing that surprised both of you, I think, but tell me if I got it wrong, that the reason that this story, this dispute, is almost poignant, really, is because the beer companies were just on the verge of getting together to fight a much bigger problem in the industry, which is that beer consumption as a whole is down. The younger people are not drinking beer. See, I don't really understand that because beer seems much more prominent as a beverage in many restaurants that we go to now. Well, um, they're craft beers. I mean, is, is that your you sense know? too? Uh, well, all I know is that Sarah Jessica Parker from Sex and the City is now in Estelle Artois commercial on TV. But that, that proves my point. They're desperate now. Yeah, to right. bring in babies. And, uh, but you You're must, spending the big bucks. I mean, all your stories on, on skiing, uh, skiing and beer must go together. There must be. Skiing and beer goes together, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, uh, and yet, I can tell you statistically, there's no question about it, that beer consumption is... that is, because they're all at the dispensaries? It, it could be. Getting it, you're, you're marijuana laughing. instead? Uh, medically. Yeah, uh, by prescription. But look, I no, don't no, really no. know. In, in Colorado, you don't need a, a subscription. Listen, the short answer is Maybe I don't know. Maybe you need know. a subscription, but not a prescription. But, but <laughs> I don't know. But the answer is it's clearly down. So much so that there was a proposal that was in the middle of discussion between Bush, uh, Anheuser-Busch, Bud on the one hand, and Miller on the other hand to cooperate in a campaign called Got Beer, which would be like Got Milk. So the company, I get it. They were going to cooperate, which is very weird. Huge. And this is what this blew this whole thing up. Now they're, they're going to now they're, they're they took away that initiative. The whole industry is going to suffer as a whole because of this internecine dispute. And and uh, there you go. They'll work it out in the courts. So it's interesting. An, an opportunity it's, lost. Yeah. All right. Is it? Uh, are we moving? Oh, I'm moving on to baseball. Yes, baseball. Oh, really much Things anymore. are getting more and more exciting oh, here. Oh, man. I, you know, I did... I did this is all about altered states. This <laughs> is the is. altered states right. podcast. Here, here, here. here you need to be in an altered state to appreciate baseball. All right. I when, think that's the way it goes. So we talked about, you know, I, I said, well, here's an interesting story about a guy who, you know, just signed a big contract. And Pam jumped in right away. She said, the guy in California, right? Yeah, how big a baseball? We need to ask you. Are you a big baseball fan? Uh, no, not at all. So how do you know about this? Uh, because it made all the news. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. Mike yeah. Trout. So he signed for a zillion dollars. What is it? $430 million? Yes. To, to $437 million. Boy, you really tuned into this. Well, anybody who makes $437 million. <laughs> when I tell my son when he was a little boy, you cannot play baseball because I'm never coming to your games. Really? And so he had to choose other sports. Is it, is it, is it your understanding or belief that Chuck would be would have be signing a contract today for $437 million had he not gotten that who advice? Knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, I, let me His jump mother in here. never let him play. Let me jump in here with uh, <laughs> I know, and the answer is uh, probably not because uh, this is the largest contract ever. Uh, and but here's what's interesting about it in terms of location. So Mike Trout was from the Philly area, 
uh, which you may know. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But in any event, he's from the Philly area, so much so that he's a fan of the local teams, the Philadelphia Eagles, big Philadelphia Eagle fan. He happens to play for the California Angels, but he's in the Philly area. So when the Philadelphia Phillies signed, uh, what's his name? Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper. There you go. Bryce Harper. Uh, they were excited because he's a big talent. But one of the reasons the folks in Philly were excited was he's friends with Mike Trout. So the dream in Philadelphia was then to follow it up next year by signing Mike Trout, the local boy, and they'd have the all-time team. Because M- Bryce Harper's very good, but Mike Trout is better. Mike Trout is the best right. in baseball. And? and what happens is he says... Two weeks later, Mike Trout says, no, I'm signing and staying in California. And why did he come to this conclusion? Because he's a local boy. He's not coming on to Philadelphia. The weather. The weather is better. No, it's not the answer. The weather is a good guess. Because the way the Angels sold Mike Trout on this, which I think is interesting and real, and I'd never heard this before, they said to Mike Trout, people talk about going home to play. That's a huge mistake. What you want to do is keep your personal life and your professional life distinct. That's the secret to happiness. If you play in Philadelphia, every time you go home, you go one for four, oh for four, you're going to hear about it. You'll never get away from it. Even when you succeed, you're not going to be able to get out well, of Well, because car. Philly's that kind of place. It Philly, is. everybody it is. has an opinion. Yeah, you and they'll let you know. Right. And you'd suffocate in Philadelphia. But think about the great thing. You have this wonderful life in California in which you're not a you know super duper store that you can't go to the dry cleaner but you're, you know, appreciated. And then in the offseason, you go home. And people nod in respect. They know who Mike Trout is. But you don't have to deal with the hometown right. thing. Right. So I Plus think in California, I think they're all, you know. Cool. They're cool. They're on the marijuana. You know, so they're not going to get too riled up. You're going to bring it into that. Like the beer drinking Philadelphians. <laughs> but, but here's the problem. That's Here's sad. the problem. I you know what they do have in California that's what? a problem? What? All those butterflies. Oh well, the, he, what, he, now he's going to have some fancy car, and he's going to have orange goop all over yes, his windshield because the butterflies are out of control. I don't, I don't have the painted ladies. The painted ladies. There are way too many of these painted lady butterflies That's out true. in Anaheim, and uh, you know, it's going to be a problem. There is yes, because of the. He's going to wish he was back in Philly. Well, he won't be driving. At least, well, if he's with driving, the hometown crowd. Let me, but if he does distracted driving in California, when the painted ladies come visit and land on his windshield, it's going to be a disaster. Especially he's had a few hits. With a bowl. Is that the way you describe it, Pam? A bowl. bowl. They smoke bowls. Smoke bowls. And, and, and where have you heard of, this? Where have you heard <laughs> phraseology like this? Uh, because, no one talks like this. Okay, because um, I, I'm a Colorado girl, and um, I ski patrol at Copper Mountain, and I'm talking to those boys in the terrain park all the time, and they are telling me what it's like, and I'm getting the lingo from them. Really? And okay. giving them the lingo. Yeah. Well, that is another one of not only is we she, should we should pause on not that only for is a she the head of trauma for the, the Western universe right. uh, or hemisphere or whatever, she's on ski patrol. She's on ski patrol, which is amazing the to us. on guard every because second. we can barely you know cross country ski across yeah. the driveway. Right. So the idea and that, Pam, uh, and someone can Pam is almost there. Zip around is and save lives. Pam is almost there. Can we say that? I can, I can say that I'm older than you. No, no, don't say that. <laughs> She's almost our age, and uh, and she's on ski patrol, and this is and you're still out there uh, patrolling. 
Although, Correct. You told us that uh, this, this, the season this year is going to last in April. The, oh, it will go. No, we're going we're gonna to ski into May this year. I mean, even the um, Arapahoe Basin, one of the highest ski areas in the United States, always goes to 4th of July. Now, some of the other ones that are at lower altitude will be going through the end of May. They've already announced because the snow has been so phenomenal this and year. And you'll be making these hair-raising rescues all the way into... Uh... Not at Copper Mountain. We're closing at the usual time because they're building even newer higher lifts. Um, wow. So out there to um, the Borg family, Tucker Mountain, no longer will have to hike. You'll be able to catch the chair to the top of Tucker Mountain. This is, I'm sorry, Copper Mountain? Copper, well, Tucker, Co- Tucker is on Copper. So wasn't Copper Mountain one of the first to have lights at night? Or it no, it's Keystone. We don't, we have no night skiing. Oh, no, okay. I no night skiing. Remember it backwards. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Taz and I went to Breckenridge once or twice. Breckenridge is a pretty cool place, and they're going to ski till the end of May yeah. at Breckenridge this year. Okay, so there we go. We had a ton of fun there, yes, but we did. We did. moving but right along. We're not ski patrol. All right, because, uh, you know, I'm a health nut, as we know. Not like the rest of you. Um, <laughs> I just well, I have a couple of uh, yes. food-oriented obits. Yes, people uh, passed away. Uh, Paul Talale, I don't know how really to pronounce it, uh, died at the age of uh, ninety-five, and he was uh, best known as a medical researcher at Johns Hopkins University for fifty years, and he is the guy who. Um, Forty four decades ago, when nearly all cancer research was focused on finding cures, he was a pioneer in searching for means of prevention. And he uh, was convinced that uh, he wrote a paper in 1992 finding a chemical obtained from eating broccoli and some other vegetables, sulforaphane, and he was convinced that that could uh, boost the body's natural defenses against carcinogens. Okay. And so he he's why we all go crazy eating broccoli and other uh, cruciferous vegetables now. More than a quarter century after his 1992 paper, it still isn't clear which vegetables are most effective in fighting cancer and other diseases or in what forms and quantities they should be eaten. Nonetheless, we all kind of believe in that, don't we? We do. Yeah, we do. And, uh, he, you know, he uh, spent many years doing this research. He also founded a, a, um, a company with his son and a fellow uh, researcher uh, selling some things. Like, it, it seems that broccoli sprouts had the highest concentration of this chemical that might reduce, that they felt would reduce uh, um, your, uh, I guess, propensity to cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they couldn't really sell it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was attractive to kind of a hippie crowd, they called it. But other than that... Well, uh, how did it taste? uh, I don't know, but it's those little sprouty things. And I don't think most of our diets... uh, It can't taste worse than broccoli. How, how much? How bad? No, but it's not about. I don't think it was so much a matter of taste as uh, you know uh, your uh, comfort or in using it. Okay. Okay. It wasn't something people to this day. Not everybody throws sprouts in their salad or in their you know various recipes. So it just didn't get off the ground. So thank you, Paul Talale, for uh, you know encouraging us to eat broccoli, um, and then. Uh, you know, I have to dedicate uh, this obituary uh, to Sadie because this obituary 
Charles Sana, and he was 101 when he passed away March 13th, was basically the inventor of Swiss Miss, the instant uh, cocoa mix that Sadie still swears by. Well, it's as good for you as broccoli, as far as my understanding. Well, he probably felt it was. He he was involved in uh, a dairy product. He was a mechanical engineer working for a company that uh, sold powdered milk. Right. And there was an excess of powdered milk uh, one year. Um, largely, they were, you know, selling it as, uh, you know, for be, to be used as a creamer for coffee. Right. And uh, so somebody got the bright idea of... Uh, um, developing this chocolate cocoa mix, which they largely sold to for um, airplanes to use uh, on their flights. And it's an odd story. I don't really follow it. Yeah. But apparently... Um, yeah, no, I, I remember. Their sales went down. Right. And, and, he, 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 and he surmised it was because the um, steward die... Yeah. On the, sta- the, the staff was stealing. The staff was stealing. It was such a fabulous project. Not on the airplane. Not because people didn't like it, because the staff it was so great that the staff was stealing it, and he managed to sell somebody on that thesis, and they went to production and they made money. Anyway, they started out calling it Brown Swiss. That was their problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like a terrible name. I would have never drunk anything. No, 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 no. But that sounds awful. Swiss but, Miss somehow uh, rang the bell. So, and, they got uh, it. so thank you, Charles Santa. Something like uh, a little broccoli Swiss and some Swiss Miss. That's and right. I got to say, the man lived to 101. Well, I, yeah. On the other hand, the broccoli man lived to 93, that's 95. Yeah. So I think either way you go, there <laughs> must be something there. <laughs> it's hard to know. Uh, so there is an article. We've, we've talked a little bit about, or at least commented on the fact that there is this production of Filler on the Roof in Yiddish, and it's now on Broadway. We keep saying we're going to see it. I mean, we will. But people say wonderful things about it. And without having thought too hard about it, we kind of assumed that the actors, in particular the star, the fellow who plays Tevye, would be someone who would be from the old country, someone from Eastern Europe, someone who's who grew up speaking. Or uh, there is Yiddish theater in New York. Yeah, or, or, or yeah, old Yiddish some theater. Some kind of underground Yiddish, Yiddish star. Right, right. And it turns out that that is completely wrong. The star is a fellow named Stephen Sky Bell, and he is from Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock, Texas. Unbelievable. But he's Jewish, right? He is Jewish, and he lived in a Jewish enclave in Lubbock, Texas. Where they all speak Yiddish. No. No, they didn't speak no? Yiddish. No? No. So yeah. how does he know Yiddish? Well, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. This is in the category of not Not that I think he has to know any Yiddish to do nope. this, right? Yes, he, he has to know some. I, it, singers can yes, fake other languages. There's dialogue. You, there's, yes, it's easier if you speak Yiddish. If you speak the language in which you're acting, it, it's a big advantage. So anyway, the fact of the matter is that he grew up in this Jewish home, but they didn't speak Yiddish. They spoke Yiddish, as I was describing before, the way Yiddish was spoken in my family growing up, which is if the parents or the grandparents did not want the children to understand, they spoke Yiddish. That does not, is not conducive to learning a language if you are the child. And right. therefore, when they want to curse you out, they would do it in Yiddish. Right? It never happened to me. But the fact of the matter right. is that he, um, so he did not learn Yiddish from his family the same way I didn't learn Yiddish. You may know a few words. He knew a few words, but that doesn't do it. What's weird is this is his story: is that he grew up. You know, he was interested in, in musical performance. And he got some jobs. He had some success, not great success, but he reached a point in life. And it was in two thousand five 
where he just decided that he was really interested in learning Yiddish. Where this come from, comes from came from, I don't know. He found a teacher at Northwestern, uh, and um, uh, the class was canceled. He, he learned a little bit, and then he and his brother pursued it. He worked really hard for no particular reason around 2005, 2006 to learn Yiddish. He might have been just embracing his heritage. He might have been. But think of the payoff. Then a few years later, eight years later, out of the blue, he comes aware of this opportunity. You know, they're doing uh, Filler on the Roof in Yiddish. Aren't you a musical comedy guy? Don't you know Yiddish? Talk about things falling into place. And then, boom, he gets the part. And even when he gets the part, he says to himself, well, this is nothing. It's just a downtown performance. It's going to attract interest from a small group of a people. A community group. Right? And then who do they get as director? <laughs> Joel Gray. And then what happens? They get a great review in the Times. And then guess what? They're on Broadway. He's on Broadway. It's like, how did this happen? And there he is. Everything fell into place for this guy. So he deserves Mazel it. Mazel <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, doesn't get any better than that. We should close on that, but we have one final story, which is almost as good. This is a fantastic story. <laughs> it is, but that was a good line. So here we go. Here we go. Here We were all amazed at this. All right? Uh, well, to set the stage, Tabs and I spoke some months ago of being at the Hammerstein Farm, and they were celebrating the legacy of Roger and Hammerstein, in particular uh, focused on the fact that the Hammerstein Farm was something that was in need of some restoration. It was where Hammerstein did his work and wrote the lyrics to all those great Roger Hammerstein musicals and almost seeking contribution. But there was a single Well, they, they've formed a foundation right. and they want to have some kind right. of ongoing effort to right. encourage uh, the values and right. uh, the interest in things dear to um Oscar, Oscar Hammerstein, Hammerstein, which yeah. is fair. It was interesting, and some people made contributions, possibly even us. But now, all that effort, I'm sure, has been surpassed by this development. Uh, uh, Ariana Grande, some of you may know, and I just knew as a fact, released a song that was very popular, got tremendous play, number one Billboard song called Seven Rings. Never thought much about it. Was number one in Billboard for four weeks. Again, never thought much about it. That's the kind of thing that happens. And it turns out, uh, unbeknownst to me, because I never listened to it, that it is... If it's not on the Broadway channel, Dan hasn't heard it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it should have been, because it's based on My Favorite Things. The song My Favorite Things from... Um, from what? Sound from, of sound Music. Sound of Music. There you go. <laughs> sound of Music. Tams was just humming. And we played it for a few minutes ago, and to our amazement, it is based on My Favorite Things. So what happens is, in that situation... Because they're the group behind it, the composers and uh, Ms. Grande uh, are responsible citizens. They uh, dealt with all stakeholders and they sat down with the owners of the copyrights on my favorite so things. So it's still under copyright. It's still under copyright. So they have to pay to use. They have to negotiate some kind yeah. of arrangement to use my favorite things. They must have really wanted to. They must have because the deal that they negotiated, according to the New York Times, is that the percentage of royalties that goes to Rogers and Hammerstein for sales of this music is 90%. 90% of the royalties of the music go to Rogers and Hammerstein. 90. So she can get just 10%. Yeah, now she's getting other money because she still make a chunk of change. Because also um, she uh, gets all her performance fees, her concert fees, all that. That Rodgers and Hammerstein get nothing of that. So she has other streams of money. It's just recorded. It's just the recorded stuff. The Live record, performances record don't count. Right. 
So uh, they worked something out. But the real point is it's a healthy chunk of change goes to Roger and Hamstein. They don't need our $35 anymore. And this is, comes from, from nowhere. I mean, you're going, really? How lucky for them. How lucky can you get? Talk about Mazel Tov. And, and the funny thing is that at the end of this, this discussion, they interview this fellow named Todd Purdom. And you, re you remember the book, Something Wonderful, that came out recently. Roger and Hamstein on Broadway. And someone said to Todd Purdom, who wrote that book, what would Rogers and Hammerstein have said about Ariana Grande using this song? Uh, and Mr. Purdom said, uh, well, they would have loved the ka of it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, is what they would have said. Right. So there you go. So uh, that sort of wraps up what we have. Uh, and we can't thank enough Pam Borg, who is our special guest, and has uh, really contributed a lot about uh, all kinds of things, certainly about uh, nursing, trauma nursing, about skiing, about ski patrol, but mostly about illicit drugs in a way that uh, we would never have gotten anything. I mean, we, of course, know uh, Noelle, your daughter, extremely well. She's never said a word about illicit drugs to us during the entire time. <laughs> I would certainly hope that. <laughs> I mean, not a word. I mean, I don't think she knows anything about illicit drugs. If we put it in front of her, she wouldn't know what it was. Smoking right. a bowl. We said smoking a bowl. Of so here's the problem. What's the problem? Um, Pam does mention she doesn't come east very often. Yeah. And now she's been to Limeport. Yeah. The burden is on us to get out to Colorado. Oh, really? Which we have not been uh, since... Uh, you know something? And Zeke yet, was and yet, one years old. And yet? So that we have not been out there I, I don't think in almost 30 years. Have we been invited to Colorado? I don't, I don't hear any invitation. I don't think Pam was invited here. And yet she's here. <laughs> That's a point. That's a valuable point. Mazel tov. Good point. <laughs> All right. So thank you, Pam. Thank you. This is Tamsin Green. And Dan Apuhop. And with Tamsin, we'll be back again next and week. And read the paper. Thanks a lot. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper strings these are a few of my favorite things cream colored ponies and crisp apple strudels doorbells and sleigh bells and snitzel Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings These are a few of my favorite things Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver-white winters that melt into springs